Welcome back for another episode of the Construction Mentor Podcast. I want to remind everybody why we're here. We are here to promote the industry. We are here to promote opportunities, career opportunities for people, not just young people, people really of any age, whether you're coming out of high school, you're looking to make a change in your life. We want you to be aware of opportunities that will allow you to live an affluent lifestyle, provide for your family, not in an average way, not in, not in a below average way, but in a way that is better than 17% of the country. There is an abundance of opportunities that can make you six figures, $100,000 or more in the construction industry, whether you're wearing boots and jeans and hard hat in the field, you're an engineer, you're an architect, you're in project management, an estimator, business development, commercial real estate, the list goes on. The opportunities truly are endless. I want to make sure that you have that roadmap out there for you and you have a helping hand pulling you through those those doors once you realize they're open. So that being said, why are we here today? Well, we've been doing the interview format most recently. We've had some pretty inspirational stories, but I want to make sure that there is some direct mentoring going on. Every few, every few episodes, I want to make sure I'm getting in there and I am either pointing something out or I am helping people avoid the common mistakes in the industry. So today, what I want to do is I want to highlight three ways to screw up your construction project. Now, this list could be endless. This is an infinite list here. The <laughs> People invent new ways to screw up their construction projects all of the time, but I have a few common ones that I run into constantly, maybe consistently, maybe that's the better word. Uh, I'm a construction guy, not an English guy. And I just want to point them out so that you can avoid them, so that you can overcome them. And when somebody tries to push a project in this direction, you don't stomp your feet, you don't refuse, but you try to educate. That's what we try to do. You try to overcome their objection, you try to sell them on the right way, and the best way to do that is to educate them. Walk them through what you think will happen, walk them through the repercussions, the impact, and most impactfully, the savings, the cost savings, because everyone's worried about their bottom line, right? Time is money and money is time. So three ways, again, three ways to screw up your construction project. Not the top three ways, not the only three ways. These are just three that I want to highlight today. Number one, switching up your project teams. Continuity. You have to keep the same people involved in your project from cradle to grave as long as possible. Now, the, the, the obvious mistake that people make are switching up the team during the construction project. We'll get to that. I want to talk about the less obvious way. I want to talk about pre-construction. Changing hands in pre-construction is normal for most companies, whether you're a subcontractor, whether you are even a design team bidding a project, or you are a general contractor going from estimating to your field staff, to your super, your super and your PM. Most people have pre-con teams, estimating teams that put together a logistics plan or a schedule or a a bid a price a proposal to an owner right and and they don't even get the field teams buy-in now the biggest problem with this is too often we have young people in these positions and they're just not builders they're kids that graduated from college nothing wrong with that uh, but they haven't spent any time in the field or the time that they did spend in the field in some rotational engineering you know young people program at these big companies you know turner gilbane whatever they may be which are great those are great programs, but it doesn't replace 30 years experience from a super in the field. It doesn't replace your 15 years experience from a project manager who was in estimating and then was in 
as a super in the field and now is running their own projects. So you can't re replace that experience and that time in the field, right? And you want to make sure that these people have buy-in on what the estimator is doing. So again, not to blackball, you know, these estimators because nobody has a crystal ball, right? And the best way that we can have a crystal ball is to get as many heads in the room, not so many heads at this paralysis by analysis, but you want to have enough heads in the room that you have a diversity of thought, diversity of perspective. Too often have I found myself in the field or do people find themselves in the field and they can't figure out something on the drawing, the subcontractor saying, oh, I don't own it. What do I do? Or your, your vendor, your lighting vendor or, you know, a furniture vendor or somebody is in the, you bring them out into the field and they're like, oh, well, I don't own this. I, I, I excluded this in my proposal. And then you bring in your estimator, your pre-con team. And what do they say? They say, oh, <laughs> they scratch their head. Yeah. Oh, shit. I guess I kind of missed it. And now you're out there haggling, making deals with the devil to try and keep the project going, all because something fell through the cracks in the pre-con process that maybe a field person would have seen. So the best thing that you can do, if you're in that traditional estimator super PM format, is to bring in your PM and your super into the pre-construction process as early as possible so that they can, number one, get acclimated to the drawings. Number two, they can create their own schedule. They can create their own logistics plans. If they see things that may be missed or may be incorrect on the drawings or maybe the detail doesn't make sense or is incomplete or they have a better suggestion, they can submit an RFI. Again, not to the point of paralysis by analysis. What I mean by that is asking so many questions for the sake of asking questions or just coming up with every reason not to move forward. We need people to push, push forward, keep pushing forward. We need productivity and efficiency, not reasons to slow down. <clears throat> this may mean now, if you are a leader, if you're an executive, if you're a director of operations, if you're somebody running a, a team or a crew, this may mean you have to pull your foreman out of the field for a day, for a half day, maybe twice a week. Maybe, and here I am talking about continuity and I'm talking about pulling somebody off of a project that they're already on, but the ship should be able to run itself for a few hours. You got to get them in there. You got to pull them out. You got to put them in a room and you have to give them ample time to give this feedback, right? And this, if, if you're one of these people, if you're, if you are this PM or this super or this foreman, maybe this means you take a little homework home and while you're sitting on your couch at night, you're peeling through because this may save you a headache and bandwidth and stress in just a couple of weeks or a few months when you actually get on this project, right? So if you're in that traditional format, do those things. And the last thing that I'll say before we go into the alternative is let your operations team have a say in what subcontractors, what vendors get awarded a project. Let me say that again. Let your field team, your operations team have a say in who gets awarded certain projects and certain scope too often we have estimators and the estimators are there and they're, they're awarding projects to subcontractors and they're making deals and they're kind of rigging the deck so that so that certain subcontractors win a certain amount of work because they're their favorite people or because they get tickets to a hockey game or a basketball game or a football game or a golf trip or a boating outing and they get buddy buddy with these subcontractors and they're they're playing their favorite players. And when they when those guys don't fulfill their obligation or they become a pain in the ass in the field or they aren't willing to play a ball or, or take on a certain certain amount of cost that might be missed in pre-construction, they screw our field teams. They make our field teams life more difficult. 
they know that there's no repercussions or, or benefit to gamesmanship with our field teams because they aren't the people who ultimately put food on their table. The only th- what they see, what subcontractors and certain vendors see our field staff as is risk, not reward. Subcontractors and vendors tend to see supers, PMs, operations teams as a drain, as a hole in the boat, as a way that they're only going to lose money and dip into their profit margin, not hand them new work. When that happens, performance goes down, right? All of a sudden, the best interest as operations teams goes lower on the priority list. Now, this isn't just me saying this as a GC to a subcontractor. I've been on the subcontractor side. So that could be you know, your insulator that you subcontract out, you know, as an HVAC contractor, maybe it's carrier, maybe it's train, maybe it's, you know, some of these, some of these controls contractors, maybe it's your balancer. And even if you're those contractors, you still have vendors and and subcontractors that you have to work with. So this really is a top down, top to bottom issue dynamic that we have in the industry. So again, let your operations teams have say in who they get to bring on the project. And the last thing I'll say before this is Bill Parcells had, you know, the when he was coaching the Patriots, he had the famous saying, if you expect me to cook the meal, let me shop for some of the groceries. Let your PM, let your super shop for some of these groceries so that they can cook you an excellent meal. Simple concept, profound concept. Now, let's take that even one step further. The alternative to that traditional format, the estimator, PM, super foreman format create pm slash estimating positions i worked at a company about uh 12 years ago it was a hvac subcontracting company i'm not going to name who they are but they're huge they're probably at a billion dollars revenue now and they're on the west coast and they had cradle to grave ownership what does that mean they had their pm was their business development they had their own clients that they maintained. They took in RFPs, they priced them, they proposed them, and they ran the project to completion and turnover, literally cradle to grave. And they actually structured their compensation plan, their salaries, based on commission. In fact, there was one project manager who was famous internal to the company. He was famous uh, for having a million-dollar W-2 framed on his wall because he created such high profit margins on his project. And he was able to do that because he shot for the groceries. He found savings there. Then he's cooking the meal. He found savings there. Every step of the way from cradle to grave, he was able to make more money for himself and more money for for the company. In the company, I mean, if, if, if he made a million dollars that year on his W-2, you can only imagine what he made for the company because that's only a fraction of what he was making for the company, right? So that is a great alternative that I think Thank you. We are going to see more and more as the years go on because with supply and demand and how competitive everything is getting right now, it's all about incentives, 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 incentives. That's what makes the world go around. Incentives and value exchange. So again, the alternative, uh, a valid or an excellent alternative to that traditional format to avoid go back to the original problem to avoid switching up project teams and having projects change hands every single time it changes changes hands the project the more risk you have so take that risk out entirely and never have it change anybody's hands 
give it to the same person from cradle to grave and incentivize them to perform. That's an excellent, that's an excellent way to go about it. Now let's move out of pre-construction. Let's go into construction. Now this is simple. We have to avoid changing our project teams during the construction process at, at all costs. From your project managers down to your foremans, they just know too much. Pulling them out of the field is just dumb. You're never going to recover the knowledge that somebody has, not only just weeks and months in the drawings and in the estimates and in the proposals, but when they're on the job. You learn more in the first week of your job or the first two weeks of your job actually out in the field trying to put Humpty Dumpty together than you do in the pre-con process because you're living it. Reality is smacking you right in the face. So when you pull somebody out, you're going to lose that knowledge. You're never going to get it back. Not just in the drawings and what's going on on the job, but what about change orders, how they were written, how they were priced, budget moves, what's been going on internally with the, with the buckets of money, who's been putting money over here and over there, and how has it been spent? How has it been projected? What deals have been made in the field? Between trades, one form and to another. Hey, I'll do this for you. You do this for me. The super down to the trade, the super for the GC down to the trades. Okay, well, do this for me this way and I'll get you over here. I'll make your life easy over here. I There's deals being made with the devil in the field. And when you pull that player off the field, those deals go away. Those are the efficiencies that make your project go round. That's the gamesmanship that makes the wheel keep turning that nobody ever knows about. And you don't know about these things until you pull that person out of the field. And I say deal with the devil, but it's not a bad thing here. It's not like this, this isn't a mortal sin that we're talking about. And it's not just people in the field. What about, what about deals with the architect? What about deals with the inspector? You have people developing personal relationships and a level of trust with people with people outside of your field personnel that have heavy impacts that have uh, profound impacts on your project. What about the deals with them? What about the things that are coordinated with them? Because what you're setting yourself up for now between other foremen, the GC team, the design team, the inspection team is a, he said, she said situation. And you don't know, you don't know. And then I'll, the more you put yourself in those situations and the faster you're trying to run, you don't have time to haggle these situations. You're going to end up holding the short end of the stick, no matter which person you are in that dynamic, no matter what team you are and all those teams that I just listed that are involved in the project. Now, the most common reason that people are pulled from construction projects during construction is the promise that they were to be given somewhere else. The promise when somebody, when a GC or a, a subcontractor or somebody bid a job to an owner, to a GC, to a design team, and those people had to say, hey, you know what? I'll give you this job. I will recommend you for this job as long as Joe the plumber is my foreman, as long as as Jack is my project manager, as long as Tom is my super. That's the number one reason, right? So then all of a sudden, you know, that project gets delayed. You know, they don't start on, on February 1st. They end up starting on April 1st. And you can't just have, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry sit home while you pay them, right? You got to send them to another project. So they go to another project. They start it. They start doing a really good job. And then you say, oh, hey, um, client, client number two, I have to actually pull him. He's promised somewhere else. That's the most common thing that happens. Now, if that's the case, you need to try to avoid that. And if it was a delay, that's your easiest in. 
with your client or your design team or your, the contractor that you're working with. You say, listen, I had him slated, but I had to send him somewhere else and now I just can't pull him off. What I do have instead of Tom, I can give you, you know, Cindy or Al and I trust me, you know, they're a heavy hitter, a player. They're going to perform just as well. You know, they're, they're already caught up to speed. And you know what I can do for you? On top of that, I'm going to give you my word that I am going to be more present on this project until you feel more comfortable with the new person that I'm going to replace. So I can't give you Tom, but I can give you Henry to make you feel more comfortable. I'm going to be more present until you feel more comfortable with Henry to ensure that this project is successful. I, I will not let this project fail. Because it's the uncertainty that people have because your client teams and your design teams and your GC teams, they know that this is the biggest risk. They know that changing hands is going to put them in a bad position. It's going to potentially make the project run longer, um, be inefficient and cost them more money. And they want to avoid that. You know, the most common saying that people use is the old bait and switch. Well, in my presentation that you gave me when you were trying to win this project, you presented me, you know, one person, I give you the job and then you switched. You baited me with somebody with a great resume, somebody that I, that I loved and I was enthusiastic about having and confident in having built my project. And now you're switching it just because I gave you the job and signed a contract. You don't, you don't want to make them feel like you did that. But if you can, maintaining continuity across all projects that you have will make your business run smoother. It'll make your schedules run shorter, your projects be more efficient. It'll save you money and it'll save your clients money in the long run. Everybody wins. <clears throat> now, there's other reasons why. A common one, one of the most common reasons would be that a client is unhappy with somebody and that's why they want to pull them off of the project. Now, for all the reasons that I just listed and all the history and the cardinal knowledge, that, that's the phrase that you'll always hear come up, the cardinal knowledge on the project that these people have. You need to do everything that you possibly can to keep that person on the project, even when it's not going well. You always want to have the client as the top priority, but you need to maintain the fact that keeping continuity in your team is the best way to serve your client. Now, an alternative that you should offer is adding bandwidth, adding more juice, adding more people to the team, right? Maybe they need an assistant project manager. Maybe they need an assistant super. Maybe they need a general foreman or a general super from a subcontractor to come and give extra attention on the site. Maybe the project manager needs to go sit out on the site. Maybe an executive needs to take a more predominant role. And instead of only checking in with the project every week or coming around when something goes wrong, maybe that executive needs to insert themselves to give the project a little more direction, right? Hop in the driver's seat or hop in the passenger seat and tell them where to turn, when to hit the gas. Maybe you have to grab the wheel for a little bit. But communicate those options to your client and give your client those options to make them feel more comfortable with keeping the project team that they have. Fill the gaps. Fill the gaps in the skill set that your project team has in the field to make your, your, make your client feel more comfortable, like they're being served and like they're the priority. So again, number one, switching project teams can't have it, whether it's pre-con or in construction. Now, number two, the timing of your drawings. When do drawings come out? Now, most, most people in the construction side don't have a say in when this happens, right? But 
whether you're on the construction side or the design side, it's important to educate, 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 educate your clients on when the best time is to release drawings to subcontractors for bidding, for permits, etc. If you are a client or a client rep, this is me telling you to listen to these teams. You have to listen to these teams for the reasons that I am about to say. I know what we're trying to do when we're trying to push drawings out of the architect's office, out of the engineer's office, and into the hands of the construction team. The faster you push basic design, schematic design, detail design, issue for permit set, construction set, bid set to 100% design, pushing through that process and forcing them to get through that as fast as possible means that whatever drawing set you're trying to get out, whether it's schematic design or basic design or, or your, your permit set, you're going to fall short. Right? They're going to scramble and they're just going to get whatever they have to do on paper to meet the minimum requirement to get it out there at that point in time. And that's not a knock on the design team. That's you trying to force them uh, to fit five, 10 pounds into a five pound bag. I see this all of the time. And I have another post from another episode where people complain about you know, the quality of drawings from the design team. And it's really not always their fault. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, they're on a four month design. They're only given two months and they're asked to squeeze it out. And as an owner, as a client, I promise you, the more time you spend in pre-con, the less time your project will be, the lower the cost will be, the less time you spend in pre-con, and the more you push through the design process, the longer your schedule is going to go, the higher your cost is going to go over your original budget. So what are people trying to do? Why are people trying to push drawings out to get early pricing to get early into 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 permitting to get through this process faster you know there's a strategy in people's minds that getting information out to contractors will allow them to start downloading the information on the project like you're downloading something on a computer this is totally wrong this is not the way to go about it let me tell you why that's wrong if you if you download them something that is only 50% complete or 60 or 70% complete, then that's all they know about the job. They only know 50, 60, 70% on the job. The problem is, is that when that last 50, 40, 30% design happens on the job, a lot changes. So whatever they were downloaded on before has now changed and they don't know what changed. So now they need to go back and find it. They're not going to find everything. Things are going to slip through the cracks. So now, what are they downloaded on? They're downloaded on the wrong information. You need to understand that. You have just opened yourself up to cost and schedule risk because they have the wrong information and you're not going to be happy about it. And I'll go through the reasons why. Now, <clears throat> the best way is to finish the drawings, dot the lowercase j's, cross the t's, get that 100% design set out so that when it goes out to pricing one time, the subcontractors can tell you what their assumptions are. They can tell you what they think is missing. They can tell you what they think needs to be changed or needs to be vetted or needs further detail. You can then budget it. You can have alternate pricing for it. They can say, hey, option A, option B. You And then you can go as opposed to, yeah, price this 50%. Okay, now price this 80% design. Price this 90% design. Well, what changed? Well, well oh, but you, I had this on my 50% set. I didn't, I, you changed it, you added it. I didn't capture it. I didn't see it on, on the 80% set. And now it's a change order to you three months down the road. You don't want to be playing that game. 
take the time to complete a drawing set. Get the feedback from the contractors. Include that in their pricing in your budget. Structure your contract that way and then move forward rather than having two, three, four, five rounds of pricing. Every time you go to, every time you issue a new drawing set and a new pricing set, you're opening yourself up to risk and risk means more time and more cost to your project. <clears throat> you're simply causing confusion. People don't have time to make, to go through these changes. You're not the only project that they have. Okay. Estimators and pre-con teams, like I said, in problem one have 10 projects on their desk at a given time. They'll win three out of 10. By the time they get awarded them sometimes, it's or a new drawing set comes out, sometimes weeks or months have gone by and they have to reacclimate themselves to the job entirely. Put out as few drawing sets as you possibly can to your construction teams. And the biggest risk that you're opening yourself up to by issuing a issue for bid set, you know, on a 50% design or a 90% design is that you're going to award your contractors based off of those, those drawing sets. So what happens? What happens when you issue an incomplete drawing set that you know is incomplete, but you're trying to get the contractors to download themselves into the project to save time, even though it causes confusion and, and you lose time and money? <clears throat> this gets you pregnant. Pregnant. Pregnant is the word. You are now in a relationship with that contractor with something that you can't get out of that's just going to grow and grow and grow. So when you get these changes from that 90% to that 100% that design set or issue for bid set to permit set to construction set, which is the most common way to do it, again, issue for bid to issue for permit to issue for construction. Again, that's three drawing sets with all different pricing. By the time you get to that issue for construction set, you're already in contract with them. You lost competitive pricing. They are no longer pricing against several other contractors. They know that they have you. Everything's going to be inflated. And now at this point, since you're married to them and pregnant with their baby, they're going to try to grow their contract at every opportunity they possibly can to mitigate their own risk and increase their own profit margin. So again, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway here is Get rid of the notion that you're issuing draw every time you issue drawings and specifications and project documents out to people, they're downloading the prod the project. And every time you change something and issue it to them, they're going to efficiently download all of the changes. It's not going to happen. That's not how it works. You're causing confusion. You're not being productive. You are slowing the process down. You are increasing your risk for schedule and cost impacts. Now, number three, the last, <clears throat> so the first two ways that, that we are screwing up our construction project is switching up our project teams, lacking continuity, we can't have it. Number two, the timing of your drawing sets, how many drawing sets you issue out to your project teams for pricing, logistics, uh, and scheduling. And number three, uh, the most common way probably that I see projects get screwed up is at the end of a project, it's in that punch list, it's in that turnover process not adequately communicating and understanding your turnover process or showing that in your schedule. You need to clearly communicate that in all directions. If you're an owner, you need to clearly communicate your requirements to end a project, to turn over a project. If you are a, if you are a design team, what are your requirements? When are you 
um, required to walk a job and sign off on certain things. What reports and what time do you need to check off, check all the boxes to, to approve the project to be done and to be occupied by the client? As a general contractor or a subcontractor, what kind of time do you need for punchless, punchless creation, commissioning, balancing, all of these types of things, right? You need to communicate those expectations in both directions and you need to put that on your schedule. Too often do I see people get to the end of project and have no time for a punch list. And then the architect comes in, they make their punch list, they address it. And then the client comes in and then they're addressing that punch list and they're all and they're scrambling trying to do it at the last second with no time left. Uh, and then the inspector has and the inspector has their punch list and Ideally, you know, they wanted to do the punch list before furniture even moved in. Now they're doing it while furniture is moving in. Now the punch list is growing and it's just a, a complete disaster. And that's the lasting impression that that your client has on the project is how you finish. And you might have had the first 90% of the project gone relatively smoothly. But that last bit was chaos. And that last bit is the part that the owner is hyper-focused and most involved and present on site. So that now gives them the impression, them the interpretation that that first 90% was chaos too. They just maybe didn't realize it. So what are some items that are involved in turnover that you need to clearly communicate? Number one is punch list, right? You want to have one punch list and you want to have it before anybody else shows up on site. If you're an owner, you want that. If you're a GC, you want that. If you're the subs, you want that. Okay. You want, and if you, and if you're the design team, you want that you want to have a punch list and at least a week for a huge area, whatever it's called to identify a punch list, show that in your schedule, address the punch list with the contractors, show that on the schedule, rewalk the punch list and get sign off, show that on the schedule, then move in furniture and client vendors and refrigerators and all that type of stuff. That's what you want to do. All right. <clears throat> What you don't want to do is not show it on your schedule at all, but you don't want to cram that into, into like two days or just show one week of punch list on your schedule uh, because it's, it's that bouncing ball, that three-step identify, address, sign off. You have to have that on your schedule, right? So you need to identify who needs to be involved in those. Does the owner need to be in there? Does the engineer need to be in there? And does the architect need to be in there? And they can't be three separate walks, right? So the design team always has theirs. And then the client wants to come in after and make their comments. Every time that happens, every time, as soon as a subcontractor addresses a punch list once, every time they come back, it's a change order. So you as a client, you as a client rep, you as a design team need to be aware of that. Okay. Every time you create a punch list, it's a change order. Or it's at least going to, they're going to try to be, they're going to try to push a change order on you. I know there's an argument that could be made for quality and that, you know, they're not ready and yada, yada, but, um, Nine, nine times out of 10, you know, the, the, they're all going to come back to you with a change order. If you are an architect or, or an owner, you need to, you should provide pictures and examples of what you expect a space to look like. Too often I, I have people coming on projects and it's a, it's a cluster at the end of a project. They see an architect will see one gang box. They'll see, they'll see some dust on the floor or, you know, certain work will be going on that is a little messy and they don't want to do it because that's not ready for punch list. If you're a GC or a subcontractor, you need to understand that oftentimes the architect expects to walk into an empty job site. Nobody there, completely clean, final cleaned, like they're ready to move in and start work the next day. If you can't get your project or you don't have that expectation set in your schedule for your project to look like that, then you probably need to. 
And when your client or your design team or somebody tries to compress your schedule, you need to educate them on this part of the process. This, this part of the process, this part of the construction, the end piece is the piece that always gets compressed the most and it should not. So who needs to be involved? Who needs to, for punch list and when? Now, the other thing that people, so this isn't just about punch list at the end. This is about uh, coordination in general. And the other thing that people screw up all the time is not understanding their clients' requirements for their own vendors. Furniture, AV, security, HVAC controls, IT closets. Oftentimes, clients have requirements that two months before a space is occupied, they need their IT team in there with a fully functioning IT room. So what does that mean? You, as a GC or an HVAC contractor or a carpenter or whoever, need to understand that that IT room needs to have flooring down, plywood on the walls, paint on the walls, operating supplemental cooling for that room. And it needs to be 100% commissioned and balanced with power in the room, grounding bars, a UPS, uh, uninterrupted power source, et cetera. That all has to be in there so that they can build their data rack. They can punch down and they can start testing in the, and they can do their own commissioning process to get their stuff up, up online, right? So that is critical. That is a critical piece of infrastructure. Let me say that again, because I just said that really fast. One of the biggest mistakes contractors make is not understanding the requirements that their own client has prior to move in. For instance, an IT closet, how far in advance of them moving in and occupying do they need that thing 100% operational and ready for testing and commissioning prior to move in? They likely need eight to 10 weeks prior to occupancy to test, commission, punch down, whatever they need to do to have their data systems 100% ready to go. So what does that mean? That means that 10 weeks prior to move in or eight weeks prior to move in, you need to have flooring down, ceiling in place, supplemental cooling installed, commissioned, and balanced. Grounding bars, plywood on the walls, racks built, all of these items that actually make the room function need to be ready far ahead of other areas on your schedule. If you're on an interior renovation, your entire schedule might not even be that long. So you need to be aware of that and make and educate your client on the feasibility of that timeline. So very critical. Make sure you understand your client's requirements and what they need when they need it. Occupancy isn't always the end-all be-all for every aspect of their project. So that was three ways to screw up your project. Number one, switching teams, continuity, have to have it whether it's in pre-con or construction. Number two, the timing of your drawings. Don't just shove drawings out the window or out the door for the sake of downloading your team onto the project. It doesn't make sense. You're causing confusion. And number three, communication about turnover requirements with your client. What is the punch list process? What spaces need to be ready when for commissioning, testing, um, and infrastructure setup so that they can have a smooth, smooth input and occupancy. Make sure you don't do these on your project. Again, my name is Ike. I am your host. That's all we have for today. If you want to learn more, if you need more help um, in your specific situation, go to constructionmentor.org or go to the link in my bio on my Instagram at The Construction Mentor. You can also follow me on TikTok at The Construction Mentor, YouTube, same thing. Um, if you really like this format, go to uh, at The Construction Mentor or The Construction Mentor Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. Um, there, there's plenty there and there's so much for everybody to learn from. So please like, please share, please subscribe, and I will see you next time.